Good morning, New Hope. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, just to give you a little background, my name is Rick Faint. Um, uh, I actually worshipped here for about seven years. Uh, the story of how that all came to be was that I was an elder at Grace Fellowship, the church out of which New Hope was planted. And the elders over here, many of them were friends of mine and one, in fact, served with me at Grace. I was invited about five years into the existence of New Hope to come over and help the elders uh, with some difficulties they were working through uh, as a worshiping community. Um, as I was here for a while, I felt I heard the Lord's call to actually come and worship here, uh, I thought, for a year. Uh, the way that I handled that sense of call from the Lord is the first thing that I did was talk to Jason, who was the pastor here, and said, I'm, I, I'm sensing this call. What, what do you think about it? And Jason got back to me. I talked to Russ Decker, who was the chairman of the elders at the time. Same thing. Then the most important step, I went to my wife and said, here's what I'm sensing. Uh, what do you think about it? And only then did I go to the elders at Grace and say, uh, I know that you have freed me to go over to New Hope to uh, help the elders, but I have a sense that I'm called to go there and be part of the worshiping community for a year. And uh, it took about three months before the elders finally released me uh, to do that. Now, the rest of the story is I was here for seven years, at which point my wife said to me, you said one year. We've been here for seven. And uh, at that point, we made the decision because I heard the Lord saying to me it was time to go back to grace. But I continue uh, to meet uh, on a, a somewhat regular basis with the elders and still meet monthly with Joe, and I meet monthly with um, Jason as well. Um, and so there's a way in which New Hope is still very much uh, a part of my life and a place that uh, I, is on my heart. So Joe asked me to uh, join with him uh, as one of the weeks in this series on surrender. And from the website, uh, I printed, and I have it displayed here, what uh, it says this series is about. God's desire for our lives is that we follow his lead into the life of his design. The challenge is that there are often aspects of our lives that we would rather God stay away from. It may even seem odd that we would talk about God in relation to those things. This series is about how God wants to be Lord of our entire life, all of it. So the topic that I pick may seem a little odd, it's point of view, other way of saying that might be opinion, uh, your leaning, your view on something. And I want to talk about that in the context with how we elder at New Hope. 
Um, eldering is a lot about leadership. That's not only what it's about. And the world is captivated by charismatic, visionary leaders. But in one of the most intensive studies on enduring leadership, Jim Collins, a professor at the Stanford Business School at the time, revealed in his book, Good to Great, an astounding finding that he came to at the conclusion of this five-year study. He set out to study the performance of very large companies, and given the criteria that he had set, in the world there were 1,435 companies that were in his data set. And he studied these companies over a 40-year period. He was looking for companies that had made the leap from being a good, average performing company to a great company that had reached enduring greatness demonstrated by long-term consistent outperformance among its competitors. Of the 1,435 companies that he studied, there were only 11 that met the exacting standards that he had defined. And as he studied these 11 companies, he was looking for characteristics that would explain their long-term competitive superiority. One of the characteristics that emerged was that each of these companies began their transformation from good to great under what he called a level five leader. On the side. There we go. He determined that a level five leader had two characteristics. And you can see in this uh, chart that the five levels were first, someone is a competent performer. Second level is that they are able to be an effective member of a team. The third level was they were able to manage people and tasks effectively. The fourth level was that they were able to inspire people to follow a, a, a vision for a future. And that's kind of where most of us think excellent leadership would end, but his fifth level was that they were able to create enduring greatness, and it was, they did that through two characteristics. It was not charisma, it was not vision, it was not intelligence, it wasn't persuasive ability, it wasn't education. The two characteristics were humility and will. 
he used the word personal humility and professional will. Now, when his study came out 18 years ago, my immediate thought was, Collins must be a follower of Christ, and he's talking about following Jesus. But I've never been able to glean that Collins has any particular spiritual inclination. There are many secular leadership authors who do, people like Ken Blanchard and Stephen Covey and Patrick Lencioni and John Maxwell, just to name a few, have written extensively about secular leadership. All of them do so from the basis of some sort of spiritual foundation. But I've never been able to glean anything from Collins. Now, I want you to know, the longer I've studied leadership, and effective business leadership, the more I've found that when studies are done and things come out, they always point back to God's word, even if they're not trying to. So what I'd like to do is walk you through a few passages that tie together leadership how we elder here, and what all of this has to do with surrendering anything. First passage is Mark 10. And in Mark 10, if you want to read along with me, uh, beginning in verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Debedee, came up to him, meaning Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Pretty big ask. But what they wanted was they wanted the power and the prestige of being with Jesus on his right and on his left in glory. Skipping a few Passages down, beginning in 41. And when the other ten heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. It's not fair that you guys would ask for that. We want that too, would be the implication. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to him, You know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's clear that the kingdom that Jesus was bringing turned social norms upside down, and the same is true today. We don't think of leaders, people in positions of authority and power, as being the least of all. 
But according to Jesus' kingdom, to lead is to serve. Now, the Apostle Paul made this incredibly clearer in his letter to the Philippians. And that's the second passage that I want to look at. Beginning in chapter 2 and verse 3, Jesus, speaking to the church at Philippi, said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To imitate Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be a humble servant. And this is a charge not to those of us that just lead, but it's to all of us as members of the church that follows Jesus. I use this passage when I do premarital counseling. I use it typically when I officiate weddings. It applies to marriages. It applies to friendships, to work, to neighborhoods, to school, to parenting. Every sphere of our existence to imitate Christ is to be a humble servant. So all of us, in whatever role we have, we are to imitate Christ and be humble servants. More particularly, leaders are to consider themselves to be last servants of all, from Mark 10. And then there's this last vignette, which is really the subject of the surrender today. In Matthew 16, beginning, I'm going to actually back up to 13 and going through to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petra, rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this passage has been understood in several different ways. Probably the most popular understanding of this is that Peter, the person, was to be the leader of the church and that it would be built on him, the rock. It's an appointment of Peter to a role, and as a rock is a solid foundation to build on, Peter the person would be the solid foundation on which Jesus would build his church. There's another view, and and by the way, that view is kind of a who view. The rock is Peter. There's another view that's more of a where view. This is the setting of Caesarea Philippi. It's an ancient Roman city that was the site of pagan worship of the Greek god Pan. And as you can see, there had been uh, some religious kind of things carved into the rock there. There's kind of an altar there and uh, places where various statues. But if you look a little bit higher too, you see there are some openings that naturally form in the rock. And it turns out that in uh, the, the pagan Greek world, they viewed the openings in these caves as being entryways to the underworld. So understanding that setting, you get to see some things that Jesus actually played on in this, um, in his talking about the rock on which the church would be built. It's interesting that the god Pan is the only Greek god that was said to have died, and the idea of his death first surfaced just before, Jesus, after Jesus' birth, but just before the time of his public ministry. That's led scholars like G.K. Chesterton, who's an early 20th century British writer and Christian apologist, who was also a contemporary and friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, so a bunch of smart guys, Chesterton wrote, It is said truly in a sense that Pan, the Greek god, died because Christ was born. It's almost as true in another sense that men knew that Christ was born because Pan was already dead. A void was made by the vanishing world of the whole mythology of mankind which would have asphyxiated like a vacuum if it had not been filled with theology. So this where view of Matthew 16 is that Jesus was using a play on words while standing on this rock, naming Peter a rock 
and was referring to be building on the rock, which was a geographic location, in which he was contrasting himself as the living Lord, ushering in a new kingdom, the church, at a place that was formerly a site of worship to a now dead and defeated pagan god. But there's a third view of this passage, and that's a what view. This is a view that I first heard articulated by Keith Yoder, a Lancaster, Pennsylvania-based pastor, therapist, and mentor to the elders at Grace and many other churches. In this view, we need to consider the whole context of what Jesus has said. Neither of the first two make any views, make any reference to this concept of binding and loosing. See, binding and loosing is a way of describing what leaders do. Making decisions about what's prohibited and what's allowed. And Christ said that on the the rock, he was giving the twelve assembled there the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that is the leadership of the church that he gave to Peter and the apostles. And here's the critical observation in this view. Peter derived his correct answer not from flesh and blood, not from his humanity, but from the Father. Peter was listening to God, and he received a revelation, and it was the rock upon which Jesus is building the church. That is the truth that Jesus is the Christ and the foundational truth, the rock, that leading, making decisions on binding and loosing, is derived from discerning what, where, how, and why the Father is pronouncing. We pray in the Lord's Prayer that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this interpretation that we were able to build a leadership model that is based on collectively discerning truth and decisions from what the Father is saying. So in eldering, the goal is to listen for the still quiet force of God in worshiping community. To do so, everyone needs to be willing to surrender their point of view, their idea, their opinion, their... And and to do that in deference to a collective discernment of the group of what is the will of the Father. Little sidebar here. I hear people from time to time say, I'm doing this because the Lord told me to do it. Or... I prayed about this, and I heard the Lord say, and so I did. That troubles me. Not because they're listening to the voice of God. I applaud that. 
but because they've independently on their own decided that they can distinguish between the voice of God and the pull of the flesh. It seems much wiser to me to share what you think you've heard God say with a group of loving fellow followers of Christ as a way of vetting whether what you think you heard came from the Father or came from the flesh. What is the source of your revelation? So, off of that soapbox, to, to bind and loose as elders, we have a symbolic way of illustrating how we make decisions, and that's, that's why I chose the illustration on the front of the bulletin. It's the two open hands with the, the palms of our hands pointed towards the heavens. We talk about, as we get ideas, impressions, opinions that we want to share as the potential conclusion of something we want to do, in worship, we recognize that Jesus is at the center of us being together. And we take our ideas and our opinions and we deposit them into that center where there is the presence of Christ. And in doing so, then, even though we have a point of view, an opinion, an idea, we don't have to personally argue our point of view. We don't have to persuade others. We don't have to be good at debate. We don't have to compete for our point of view. But rather, we wait for confirmation collectively. It takes incredible patience, stamina, and courage to wait. Often when you're leading, people want decisiveness and action. Saying that we have not decided yet can appear to be a sign of weakness and futility. So it takes courage to be willing to wait until there's a collective discernment of what the Father is saying. To just give you an example of a major decision that had to be made was whether we would receive the invitation that we got from the Episcopal Diocese to move our congregation here to Catonsville when we had been planted as a church that was supposed to reach the 795 corridor. That was a scary and troubling invitation. There were lots of things associated with it. The Episcopal Church had been experiencing years of evangelicals leaving. And they asked us to partner with them. We would have to physically move to where, while there were some people who drove 20 or 30 minutes to get there, we were going to move where some people had to drive 5 or 10 to where they now have to drive.
20 to 30 minutes. And people wanted a decision, and they wanted to know which way we were going to go. And we let the body know we've been, and we've received this invitation, and we're just trying to discern the voice of God on this. What does God want us to do? It took a couple of years before we came to a decision, and I distinctly remember sitting around an outdoor table in the backyard of Jason and Mary Poling's house, and we were talking about uh, the, the, the implications of this, etc. And in the midst of it, one of the elders who I would clearly say was one who was most troubled by saying yes, said, so are you telling me that the Episcopals want to plant a church in that building and they want us to come not just to worship in the church, but to help them in how to plant a church and to help them with things like house churches and other ways of having community worship outside of Sunday. You could visibly see that that changed everybody's attitude about it. And it was that evening that we decided that we heard the voice of God calling us here. I'll end with um, this nugget. One way to describe how you vet your opinions, desires, impulses is to view them as either Esau's or Isaac's. If you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, they were elderly and, and childless, and yet God, proved, uh, God promised to them that he was going to give them an heir and that their offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the skies. And Abraham and Sarah believed God. It took a little bit along the way, but they believed God. That, and that God would fulfill that promise. But time kept ticking away, and they were getting older and even farther removed from normal childbearing years. And so they decided that God needed their help. They believed God, and they believed that God would give them an offspring. But they said, here's how God's going to do it. Abraham, impregnate Hagar. And so he did, and so Esau was born. But that was not God's plan for an offspring to inherit the world. Eventually, Sarah did become pregnant and delivered Isaac, who was God's intended offspring to inherit the promises that he made to Abraham. And now we know there were many uh, things that happened between Esau and Isaac over the years, uh, much of which was negative and ugly, etc. So in Esau, 
is when you believe something that God's promised, but you decide you need to take over and help God deliver. And Isaac is believing in God's promise and waiting for him. So the question is, when you have impressions, when you have ideas, when you have point of views and opinions, and you think that you're hearing the voice of God, is it an Esau, a way that your flesh takes over and wants to help God make his will be done? Or is it an Isaac, the outcome that is the will of the Father in his time? One way to ensure more Isaac than Esau's is to surrender your point of view to the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that throughout your word, you tell us that you speak to us. And Lord, we want to hear your voice, your still quiet voice. Lord, we want to have the faith and the trust to surrender our opinions and point of view and ways that we want to go, to surrender those to your Lordship. Lord, help us become a worshiping community where there is mutual love and respect and where we all want to imitate Christ, as Paul said in Philippians 2, in that we want to be humble servants, Lord, to one another. Help us to discern together so that your will would be done on heaven as it is in earth. Amen.